Hello, and welcome to On the Right Track podcast. On the Right Track is a podcast by two South Asian debut authors, Emily Varga and Sara Ambrana, that addresses the little known secrets of publishing, marketing, and behind the scenes of traditional publishing. We interview guests who are in different stages, jobs, or careers in the traditional publishing industry in order to provide our listeners with an insider's look. Today, we have on the podcast the wonderful G. Willow Wilson, who is the author of the acclaimed novel, The Bird King, one of my personal favorites, co-creator of the Hugo and the American Book Award winning series, Miss Marvel, and has written for some of the world's best known superhero comic book series, including the X-Men, Superman, and Wonder Woman. Her first novel, Elif the Unseen, won the 2013 World Fantasy Award for Best Novel, and was a finalist for the Center for Fiction's First Novel Prize, and was long listed for the 2013 Women's Prize for Fiction. In 2015, she won the Graphic Literature Innovator Prize at the Penn America Literary Awards. Her work has been translated into over a dozen languages, and she lives in Seattle. Welcome to the podcast, Willow. We are so excited to have you on here. Thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here. To give our listeners kind of a little bit of understanding about where you're coming from, if you could tell us a bit about your publishing journey and what got you here today <laughs> and got you to Miss Marvel and got you to writing for all of those amazing comics. Yeah, absolutely. You know, so I think everybody has a different pathway into publishing. It seems like no two Mm -hmm. stories are alike, uh, which I know can be frustrating for people trying to navigate it themselves because there's, there's no sort of set route. In my case, I've really never wanted to do anything besides write. I'm not terribly good at anything else. (laughs) You know, just ever since I was a kid, you know, I was one of those children who seemed very studious because they were always, you know, quietly writing in class. But usually when I looked like I was taking notes, I was actually writing stories and what we would now (laughs) call fanfic. I mean, back then I didn't even have a word for it. This was pre-internet. Yes. (laughs) So there was no real fanfic community that I knew of anyway. And I was a comic book nerd also from a very early age. I was sort of of a prime vintage for the 90s X-Men cartoon, which I was mildly obsessed with. Oh my God, me too. I yes. think yeah, I think we're the same vintage. So I, yeah, yes, I was obsessed right. with it as well. There's a certain, yeah, a certain group of older millennials that, you know, that was, that was sort of our entry into pop culture. I also lived in New Jersey and I lived not far, ironically, from the comic book shop that Kevin Smith goes to, or at least went to when he lived sort of in central New Jersey. So I was in there a lot for horse statuettes. I was also a big horse girl and comic books. And when I got a little bit older, started to think about storytelling as a, as a profession, which, you know, a lot of people tried to dissuade me from for obvious reasons. It's fraught with peril, but uh, you know, it occurred to me, okay, there are people who write and draw comics. <laughs> How does one become one of those? Mm-hmm. It's a real job, I promise. Yeah, it is. Well, yeah, kind of. <laughs> you know, real job, maybe in air quotes. <laughs> but you know, back then there were no real classes on how comic books are made. 
uh, how to write comic books. Everybody just kind of DIY'd it. Now I think there's a lot more material out there. Uh, there are actual classes that you can take for academic credit at certain art colleges. There's a lot of great online tutorial stuff. But, you know, back then we're talking about late 90s, early 00s. There was really nothing. So what I did, like a lot of comic book writers, you know, sort of of that of that age range was sort of reverse engineered the comics I was reading. Uh, I would literally, this is somewhat sacrilegious, but I would number the panels on the page to see, okay, how many panels does it take you to get through a particular action? How many panels does it take oh, wow. to depict a sneeze? How many panels does it take to depict somebody going from standing on the ground to boosting themselves into the air like Superman? Oh, wow. You know, there's things that you don't realize that are very particular to this medium. Like if mm -hmm. you want a uh, a cliffhanger, you have to make sure that the resolution of the cliffhanger is on a page turn. Because if it's on uh -huh. a facing page, you spoil a surprise. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's it's a highly technical, weirdly technical form of writing that kind of resembles screenwriting in some regards, but the images are still, which gives you a certain kind of freedom and also places new restrictions that you wouldn't get when you're writing scenes for actors to act out in real time. But, you know, I kind of, I, I love stuff like that. I, I love things that have a ton of different little bits and bobs that fit together and, you know, trying to figure out how it all works. So it was kind of fun, but uh, there wasn't really a route into becoming a published writer of comics, especially mm -hmm. uh, at that time. Actually, you know what? It really hasn't changed. I was going to say it's changed. <laughs> That's not really true. <laughs> uh, some publishers now will do almost like super internships where they're taking right. you on for the specific purpose of training you to write comics because, you know, it is so different from other forms of writing that it's it's a big jump, even for people mm -hmm. who are very talented in, in other forms of writing. So, you know, some of the bigger publishers will do stuff like that. But, you know, for me, literally the way I got my first comic book writing gig was I was doing some work for one of the very first digital comic companies, which is now defunct, which was way ahead of its time because this was pre-tablet. The only way you could read comics online was on your big chunky desktop computer, you oh know, which you can't gosh. exactly curl up in bed with. But so, you know, like that, that sort of came and went, but through them, I got to go to uh, comic book conventions and meet other creators and most importantly, meet editors who are the ones who have a certain amount of hiring and firing power. And by that point, I'd written so many practice comics <laughs> that I had stuff to show people and got a short little eight pager and then got to do fill in work on other people's books, which is and that is pretty typical. Once you're in, that's typically how you start. You'll start with short stuff and then it's, oh, can you do two issues of this other person's book because they're out sick or on vacation or whatever? Uh, and then eventually, hopefully, if that goes well, you you get some of your own books. So I, I know that's long, <laughs> but, you know, comics is such a weird little niche industry that uh, I feel like there's there's a lot of explaining that you have to do. Yeah, it is. It, it is so niche. Like, and, and we've never interviewed someone from that space before. So it's so interesting to hear the just the different ways that people kind of get into publishing and fall into that. Are you able to expand more on your novel writing as, as well? Yeah. I've always loved both. I, I'm, I'm just like probably a lot of people you interview. I was a huge reader as a kid. If there's one piece of advice I can give to everybody who wants to do this full-time or even part-time, it's wear a lot of different hats. Don't marry yourself to being like, oh, I just want to be a novelist or I just want to be a screenwriter or mm -hmm. I just want to do comics or 
don't lock yourself in because in all likelihood, there is not a full job's worth of work for you in any one of those things. Like you, you kind of have to do a lot of different stuff. It's that diversifying of income streams. Exactly. Yes, that's that's what it is. So, you know, I, I always have a novel going alongside my comics. They usually wow. suffer a lot because comics <laughs> deadlines are short term. Mm. Uh, you know, you, and if you're the writer, you're the first domino. If you're late, everybody else is late because everybody is working off of that script. So if you're not on time, none of the artists can be on time or the colorist or the letterer. So what ends up happening is I put an, out a novel roughly every, every five years because it gets pushed back and back and back. But compared to comics, getting into novel writing was, was way easier because it was like applying to college, you know, like you write the book. <laughs> Yeah, that's step one, <laughs> you know, and then you query agents, which is a lot easier now. Back when I was querying agents, again, because the internet was still pretty young, you had to do everything by snail by mail. mail. Yeah. And mm-hmm. there's this whole, like, I remember there were like chapters in Writer's Digest that were like, make sure the paper is a good weight, you know, pay attention to the font that you use. Don't oh use gosh. aerial font. Like, this is what we're talking about. The age of dinosaurs here. Now it's all <laughs> online. You know, but you were sending paper manuscripts mm-hmm. to people in the mail, giant, chunky, you know, 400 page manuscripts. It was it was just complete craziness, you know, compared <laughs> to how efficient it is today. But literally, I I wrote the first draft of a book, you know, thought it was pretty good for me. Didn't know it, if how good it was generally. You know, I, I feel like you get to a point where you can critique your own work a little bit after, you know, pretty strongly what your weaknesses are. And you can be like, oh, I'm doing it again. Oh, there's, you know, there's my little bet noir, whatever it is, run on sentences or, you know, weak second acts or what have you. But at that time I was pretty young and I, I didn't yet have the tools to deeply critique myself. So I knew it was good as I could get to at that point. And I kind of set it, sent it off into the ether to, I think, five different agents. I never heard back from two of them. One was like, okay, maybe... But, you know, can I see something else in addition to this? And then I sent something else and then didn't hear back. Was this before your comic writing or was this during? This was kind of synchronous. Uh, Let's see. I'd have maybe a couple of small comics published. So did that help? Maybe 2005. I think it helped. Yeah. Anytime you can say I have previously published stuff Mm -hmm. of any variety, I think it helps because... You know, it's it's sort of a signal to agents and editors that you can finish things. And it gives you a little bit of credibility. Too. It gives you a little bit of credibility. And I think talking to agents and editors, I get the impression that it's less about you have to prove your quality than you have to prove that you can work on a deadline and finish stuff. Because for a lot of people, that's the biggest issue is, OK, you've written, you know, a brilliant first third of the book. But can you finish it? It makes publishers breathe a little bit easier if, if they know, okay, like you've actually written a 400 page book or like you've you know done a couple of articles on tight deadlines and stuff so you can work in that environment. So I think there's an assumption among writers, especially early in your career, that they're judging you solely on quality. But, you know, a good agent and a good editor, if they see something, if they see a jewel buried in there, and the quality is not quite there, they'll work with you. But what they want to see is that you can finish stuff and take criticism because that's what I think causes a stumbling block for a lot of people. It's just so exhausting to finish a book, number one. And, you know, like for anybody, it's just exhausting to finish a book. And mm-hmm. it's it's also, you have to be in the right brain space to take the kind of criticism that they're going to give you to polish it up, which is soul destroying sometimes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, you know, I think it's kind of a signal to them, you know, I can make edits and I can finish things. 
Was this project a lithium scene? And was this with the agent that you ended up signing with? Yes to both. Yeah, oh. I've been with the same agent my whole career. Oh wow. <laughs> That's he, awesome. Yeah, somehow we've 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 stuck together. It was yeah, it was kind of a destiny thing. He was the agent that I felt like I liked the best just because I liked all of the books that he'd represented. He'd represented mm-hmm. House of Leaves, which was huge when I was in college. Everybody was reading that book and I was really into that book and I was like, he's probably pretty unshockable. And he was the one that said that said yes ultimately. It was just kind of destiny. But at the time when I was starting Aleph the Unseen, I just graduated from college. I was living in Cairo and blogging had become a huge thing. And it was a way to sort of circumvent state censorship across large swaths in the Middle East because they still couldn't track down a lot of these bloggers who were writing under pseudonyms. You know, the censors couldn't quite get to them and they'd started arresting some of these bloggers. Once they found them, they were going to jail. And I was like, wow. Nobody's paying attention to this. This this is a huge shift in how information gets disseminated and how criticism of the regimes works. And now it sounds very intuitive. Yeah. But at the time, Western editors, even ones who probably fancied themselves very open-minded and liberal and whatever, were kind of like, they have internet over there? Oh my God. I am dead serious. I am dead serious. Wow. You know, I was trying to pitch shorter nonfiction pieces to Western newspapers and news magazines about like, this is, this is going to go somewhere. This has legs. Mm -hmm. This is going to be a huge shift in, you know, how people communicate in regimes like this, because now they can get in touch with each other. They don't have to use their own names. Again, now it sounds extremely obvious, but back then, you know, I I just couldn't get anybody to pay attention. And I was like, you Mm -hmm. know what, I'm going to write a book. I'm going to write a novel. I'm going to fictionalize everything. Yeah. (laughs) Thank you. It's literally one of my favorite novels of all time. Like, I need people to understand. I went into SFF, like fantasy and like sci fi because of this novel. Mm. My all time favorite novel. Oh my gosh. This is Mm. like, you've made my my month. (laughs) That's amazing. I had never read a book with Muslim protagonists and side characters Mm. set in the Middle East you had a lot of magical realism in it inspired by Islam. And I was like, so shocked to see it. It was amazing. You were so well done. I can't believe it was your first novel. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, like, I I feel like sometimes your first novel is every single skill that you have ends up there. Like every single Mm, thing that you're interested in. Throw everything in. Yeah. Everything is in there. And so sometimes it ends up being better than the stuff you write after. Like, I I feel (laughs) like there's a drop for a lot of people. Mm. Uh, possibly myself included, I have to tell you, where your first novel is like, wow, oh my God. And then your second one is just like, (laughs) oh, come on. Yeah, your second novel, it's not not like that. (laughs) Not like that at all. Well, thank you for saying so. (laughs) I mean, I'm really fond of the Bird King. I I really like, I love those characters. I love them a lot. But yeah, Aleph, I think was special because there was a sort of urgency there. You know, it, it it took a while to sort of, congeal and become a thing. I think for a while, Mm. it was kind of two or three different novels that I was really having trouble melding together, you know, because there are elements that are sort of high fantasy. There are elements that Mm. are, you know, sort of sci-fi ish. And, you know, there are elements that it's just, you know, sort of a character study. It's, it's more literary fiction and it's about, you know, the, 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 the two or three characters that are at the center of the narrative and putting all that together was work. What was the sub process like for that? Because like reading it, it's a quite out there novel in terms of its political commentary. Yeah. Nowadays, when I hear about Muslims on sub and like even myself, when I was on sub earlier, the feedback was kind of crazy. But like Mm -hmm. seeing that, you know, you're 
novel was published so early before there were a lot of Muslim books and fantasy. Yeah. And it's very political. Yeah. I, you know, honestly, Rod, I think if you were to take the same book out today, publishers would be a lot more nervous about it. Wow. Yeah. I think that's really, really true because I think back then nobody really knew what they were dealing with. It was, it was sort of like, it was post 9-11. People were still in that mentality. We were still living in the shadow of that event. Mm. And so anything that was, you know, just sort of about Muslims being Muslim, as opposed to like responding to 9-11 was kind of like, ooh, this is new and interesting. Whereas now I think, you know, Muslim writers are seen through a broader lens of diversity, like big D diversity. And so now it's like, okay, we got to make sure that we've ticked all these boxes. We want to make sure that we're not stepping on any third rails. You know, I think that there's more wariness now than there used to be, ironically, because the attitude has become a little bit more, I, I don't even know what the right word is. You're looking at things besides just like the book and the narrative and how things fit together. And, and there are more factors now than I think there were back then that make it ironically more difficult to get a book through that is about a marginalized identity, but not I about yeah. identitarianism, if that makes mm -hmm, sense. Mm -hmm. Like no, you're not trying really to does. write a book about like being this specific thing. Yeah. It's just about those people living their lives. You know, yeah. like that's, I think, a harder sell, which is, which and, is and ironic. A huge challenge. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. With, with people of different identities now and marginalizations. Is they want that you to write about that. Exactly. They want you to write about that. They don't want you to write mm -hmm. about like, this is just a fantasy book, which happens to be set in this specific place and is about yeah. these specific people. They're not interacting with anybody outside the community. It's not really commentary on anything. It's just a book about these people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was before it was like, if you are from this identity, you have to write a book about identitarianism. So when that book released, like aside from the reaction from editors, like when it came out into the world, what was the reaction to it? You know, it's interesting. It got a lot of a press attention right at first, but didn't sell terribly well. I have to say. Oh, didn't know that. Like there's been a nice long tail where it kind of chugs along. Mm. Uh, but it did not hit any bestseller lists anywhere, like even regional ones. Wow. I am shocked. No, you know, at the time, like we were saying, there was so little stuff like that out there that people didn't really know where to shelve it. They, you know, they, they weren't quite sure how to categorize mm -hmm. it. Mm -hmm. we, we just weren't having a lot of the conversations that we're having now. Even sci-fi yes. and fantasy back then was not quite as mainstream as it is now. This is pre-Game of Thrones. This is the very beginning of sort of the Marvel universe and like the, you know, the new cinematic universes. So people's exposure, I think, to sci-fi and fantasy in the mainstream was a lot less than it is now. And I think there are a lot of people who now consume tons of sci-fi and fantasy who at the time would have been like, oh, I don't really read sci-fi and fantasy. 100%. Yeah, I think it just sort of got stuck in a like, we don't know what this is. It doesn't resemble anything else. And so it's hard to sell. Yeah, there was there was a burst of positive press attention. You know, I got pretty excited. And and then, yeah, it didn't it didn't sell the way that I, I think any of us had hoped that it would. What yeah. exactly changed that then? Was it the award season that kind of helped? Because I found the book when I found out it won the World Fantasy Award. That's kind of like how I do my initial yeah. readings. Yeah, I think that definitely helped. I think that helped put it in front of the eyes of people who are looking for, you know, fantasy of that kind. I think that did help, but it never hit a point where it's like, wow, this is a big seller. Like it's still just kind of like it's chugged along. There are some books that sell really well and then fall off. And then some books that sell really well eternally and some books 
that just kind of chug along and it's just kind of chugged along. There's not, there's never been a point where it was like selling like gangbusters. So, you know, it's interesting to me that there are readers who still talk about it and still love it, but it never sort of rose above the waterline. But it's good for longevity. Yeah. Like I think a lot of people, like you said, start off like either super loud and like they go out with a big bang or it starts off quiet, but they get a steady readership, which I think in your case is you have a steady readership that I think is dedicated because you put out really good quality work. Thank you. Thank you. Well, it's it's flattering to hear you say that. I, I really feel incredibly lucky because, you know, I, I, I love my readers. I love them. We talk every day on Twitter. We, you know, we meet at conventions or at signings and stuff. And I feel like we are very much on the same page, just kind of as human beings. <laughs> so it does feel like a really wonderful community. And I've met some incredible people. I like that you touched on marginalized identities and kind of like Emily and I talk about this all the time. We yes. feel pretty boxed in. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you are boxed in. You are boxed in. Yes. Where we have to write for myself on Pakistani, you know, do I have to write Pakistani fantasy? Mm-hmm. I do mm-hmm. not, by the way. But I feel boxed in. I don't want to be marketed that way. I'm very proud of my identity, but I think my work has more value than just for a specific community. I think mm-hmm. it should be accessible for everyone. And it's a way I think, I don't know, I might piss some people off by saying this, but I think it's it's a way of putting books that are identified as like diverse with a capital D over here in a corner. Like this yeah. is not a mainstream book. This is a diverse book. Yeah, so it's almost like subtly saying this is not for a general audience. This won't be of interest to you. Yeah, it takes it right out of the mainstream. So it's like, exactly. even if it's excellent and a book that you might love, it's right. like, oh, this isn't, you know, this isn't kind of the mainstream. It's not going to sell in the same way. It's not going to be yeah, consumed that way. Exactly. And I don't know if it's on purpose. I don't know that like somebody's sitting there twirling their mustache. Oh, like, it is. <laughs> you think you think so? See, you've been Definitely. through the ringer. Like my my experience getting in is now like 15 years old. So like you guys are on more of like the cutting edge of like, okay, what's what's the publishing meat grinder, you know, to just sort of get your foot in the door? What is that like right now? So if you feel like it's, if it's purposeful, then, then yeah. It, then it I think some is. of it is definitely <laughs> subconscious though, right? Like yeah. some of it is definitely like, it's kind of gone to this level that it's almost like, oh, you're this, like you're a Pakistani. Okay. Like, are you doing like a Pakistani like contemporary novel? Like, are you doing this? Like, is it specifically about your identity? It's almost like right. subconscious sometimes, like where people have it in their mind and they can't, can't, they can't get away from that. And it's like, how do we move away from that? It's so hard. Like, and how yes. do we, you know, celebrate books by people of different marginalizations that aren't just about that marginalization? Like, how do we break that? That's what I would like to know. <laughs> I've been thinking about this a lot because I have changed the way that like on social media, I'll talk about other people's books if they are in the capital D diversity basket, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. because I've noticed that it pops up right away. Like this is such an important book because it's about you know, like a woman from this particular background and whatever. And like you front load those, you know, identity markers, which are critical Mm. to the story, but you know, you're not saying any of the things that we say about the books that go on to become icons of popular culture, which is it's humanitarian, it's, you know, new and vibrant. It touches on like universal experiences it's not getting that kind of press. It's almost like the marketing itself or the way that people talk about the book is meant to reflect the virtue 
of the reviewer or of the, you know, yeah. the person yes. who's writing about it rather than the value of the book itself. Yeah. Like, I'm so great that I read this. Like, look at me this reading this book, book and telling you to go. this marginalized yes. community. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've done my little service for the day. Yeah. And I think at the beginning, that was good because you had to draw attention to the fact like, look, these books are not getting the same amount of press as other stuff. And you want to sort of frame it and be like, this is important because we're not hearing from these people. So I think it started out from a good place. But what it became is a signal, I think, to certain people that it's it's sort of like safe to ignore. Oh, that's not for me. Oh, that's, yeah. you know, that's just for that community. Or like, yes. this is not a mainstream book. Also, publishers don't know how to market books. Like we are seeing it with the trial right now. I don't know if you're keeping up. Yeah. But, you know, when these executives are asked how to market certain books or certain books in a advanced bracket, they don't have answers. And mm-hmm. I think that's even more so the case for marginalized books. And I think that's a good segue actually into talking about the very popular Miss Marvel series, because <laughs> you very notably have a Pakistani Muslim main character, Kamala, mm-hmm. who is very popular. What was, first of all, your early journey going into writing Miss Marvel, but also that reception? Because I'm curious how that comic was marketed initially, yeah. given mm-hmm. that it was, you know, Pakistani main character, Muslim main character. Yeah. I've said this before, but I would never have pitched that book. I would never have had the guts (laughs) ever in my life. I, especially at that time in comics was sort of getting by by keeping my head down, you know, trying not to talk about my religion very much. There was a lot of pushback, a lot, scary pushback when I was, for example, just, he just came on to write two fill-in issues of Superman. So I wasn't taking over the title. It's just the main uh, writer had been struggling with an illness and they needed a fill-in. There was tons of pushback. They were like, this is unacceptable. You can't have like a Muslim writer on Superman because this is... Yes, yes. You can't have a Muslim writer on Superman because this is... uh, What did did they call it? Not stealth Sharia, not hidden Sharia. What was it? Stealth Sharia. It was a specific (laughs) term. People don't understand what Sharia means. (laughs) There was this word like stealth. No, I'm using the wrong term. People need to get educated on Sharia. (laughs) Yeah, no, no, no. But I'm not using the right word. There was a a term in the right wing blogosphere. It was like stealth Sharia, but it wasn't But We we got your meaning that what what people think that you're secretly doing is... Like that it would be coded. infiltrating. Yeah, Infiltrating the minds of like comic readers, young people through this American hero. That's converted into Islam. (laughs) Yes, that's what it was. I'm going to I'm going to kick myself. I have to go back and look and see what some of these post 9-11 like conspiracy theory terms were, because I've blocked some of them out from like that era of the Internet. But anyway, yeah, so there was big pushback. And like, you know, back then, nobody's gonna stand up and defend you. It's not worth it to anybody. I had, I was a no name person back then. And so it was very scary. And I had to kind of duck under it because there was nobody, there's nobody else out there. And then, you know, like Sona Aminat, who at that point was the only other Muslim woman working in superhero comics in the United States of America. This is crazy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> she was the only one. We need she, more Muslim comic writers. I know. Well, now there's many more. I mean, that's what's the beauty of Ms. Marvel is that like it was proof of concept. And so now there are tons. Yes. You know, well, not tons. They're not tons of comic book writers, period. There's it's a small <laughs> club, but you know, there's there's like 300% more than there were before. But yeah, no, she called me. We had been talking for like a couple of years about how we wanted to work together on something and it just kind of never was the right time. She called me and was like, hey, you know, we want to do a new, you know, American Muslim superhero character. And I was like, oh, my God, we're going to get killed. Like, literally, we're going to get assassinated. (laughs) 
but yeah, so it was, it was, it was Sana's brainchild. Mm-hmm. She, I have to say was, was braver about the whole thing than me. I really wanted to take way fewer risks uh, and was always trying to go with like the path of least resistance, but she was like, no, let's do it. Let's do it. And let's say that that's what it is. You know, like American Muslim girl character created by American Muslim women. It was like a whole thing. And I was like, I just don't want to lose my job. What about the decision of making her Pakistani? Like that was it at the beginning. Like it was young adults, Muslim superhero. That was it. No powers, no background, no setting, no name, no nothing. And, you know, we sort of went back and forth with a lot of different things. There was one conversation she that we had where she was like, you know, we could make her a white convert, you know, because you're a white convert. And I was like, no, it would be a wasted opportunity. If the character is going to go somewhere, it has to have maximal resonance with the maximum number of people. Mm-hmm. My situation was so unique. I'm like, it, it's, it doesn't tell you anything to have like a white convert character. It doesn't tell you anything about the Muslim community because it's such a specific individual subset of the community that you don't get a sense of the central narrative at all. So, you know, it, would it have been safer to do that? Yeah, but the character would have gone nowhere and it would have been a waste. And then people would have been able to say, oh, look, this kind of thing fails. So eventually we struck on like, okay, this whole thing came about because Sana had been having conversations with her own editor about her experiences growing up. And I was like, why don't we just do that? The whole reason that this exists is because of you telling stories about your childhood to your editor. So like, why why are we overthinking it? Let's just roll with that. That was kind of how it came about. We're also, Sana and I, almost the same age. We're both from New Jersey. So we had, you know, very similar touchstones growing up. We grew up about 20 minutes away from each other in the towns that both of us lived in were majority minority. So like, <laughs> you know, this is this is kind of the most hated character in, in all of Ms. Marvel. But like, you know, my experience growing up, I'm not I'm not an orphan <laughs> or dealing with a lot of the stuff that Bruno was. But, you know, Bruno knows a few phrases of Urdu. He has a lot of friends who are East Asian or South Asian. That's very much what my experience was growing up in New Jersey. You know, like, here's our white friend. <laughs> so like, there's more of me in some of the side characters than there is of me in the main character. I love that. Yeah. It, it just made a lot of sense because Sana's conversations about her own life were sort of the inspiration for pitching the book in the first place. You're from New Jersey. I'm from New Jersey. These, these were conversations about growing up Pakistani in New Jersey. So like, let's let's just go with that. Is most of the audience uh, champions Miss Marvel? Do you find that they're white, or are they mostly brown, or like Muslim, or do you find a healthy mix? It seems like a mix. You know, there are people who love the book and the character and hate the book and the character, kind of on all sides. It's almost as if the story is universal. <laughs> Exactly. Well, almost. Yeah. And and part of that is on purpose, too, because I was getting to a point where Ms. Marvel had a phrase that was short enough to fit in a word balloon. So, so, you know, like in the in the region of 10 words that people would resonate with and would become sort of like, okay, this is the ethos of this character. This is the ethics of this character truth, justice in the American way, which did not start out that way. It was originally truth, justice, and tolerance for Superman or uh, with great power comes great responsibility Mm -hmm. uh, for Spider-Man. You know, something that people are like, yes, this is something that I can take and apply to my own life. It's portable. I can carry Mm -hmm. it with me. You know, like this is sort of sun as assignment for me for months. It was like, okay, come up with the, the Muslim version of that. 
like, oh my God. I love that though. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it was so cool. Mixing like the deemed values in mainstream comics. I wanted to make it so that it was not just an expression of Muslim ethics. It was something that non-Muslims yes. could find comforting and useful. That it's relatable. Yeah. Because I mean, like as it was for us, a great tradition that gives you comfort and balance and purpose then, you know, it could be that for people who don't believe it either, you know, like there's, there's things and themes that you could pull out that are useful to anybody, no matter what they believe. And, you know, I didn't want it to sound parochial or preachy, like, I'm, you know, I'm trying to convert you. This really is the stealth Sharia, you know, like it had to be, (laughs) you know, just sort of an ethical point of view. Yeah. That was, you know, very Muslim, but anybody could use and apply to their own lives. It took months, but then uh, I, I can't remember. It was, I, I was having conversations with another friend of mine who was Christian about faith versus works, like what you believe versus what you do and like how different those are in Christianity versus Islam. And, you know, like, like one of those rare productive conversations, rare productive interfaith conversations. <laughs> and I was thinking a lot about deeds and what it is that you do in Islam and how central that is, you know, in the Hadith about like that you should try to correct evil or, or oppose evil with your hands. And if you can't do that, you should do it with your speech. Um, and if you can't do that, then you should at least oppose it with your thoughts because this is the minimum of faith. So, you know, like the maximal thing is, is actions. And that's how, you know, eventually we got to good is not a thing you are. It's a thing you do. It's an action. But boiling that down was, was that's the hardest. How many words is that? Is that 12? Is that 12 words? Hardest 12 words I've ever had to come up with in my entire life. But it paid off. Wow. And there were earlier versions that fell by the wayside that sounded like, nope, nope. Nope, nope. <laughs> not there yet. Nope, it's not this. So, oh my gosh, it was rough. It was uh, a lot of work went into that character before anything ever got put on the page. Can you speak a little bit about the marketing side of Miss Marvel? You appealed to a broad audience and, and you did that and they made a freaking Disney show about it. So how how did that kind of roll that way? Like, how did you get that marketing or, or what? We didn't. Oh, you didn't. OK, <laughs> tell me more. We did not. OK, I'm, I'm, I'm phrasing this in such a way that I'm not... <laughs> disclosing anything that I shouldn't disclose. Yes, yes. Or running afoul afoul of anybody. It's a loaded question. It's a loaded question. We were expecting, everybody was expecting, I think across the board in, in marketing and, you know, between ourselves and everything, that this was going to be a kind of a nice side project. I think Sana from the beginning was like, we can make it something bigger. But the marketing that we got was... Well, here's the thing. At a really big corporation that has new books coming out all the time of some of the most storied IP in the known universe, you get like a couple days where it's like, okay, you have the full attention of the marketing people for the next 72 hours. And after that, they got to move on to another announcement. You know, that was kind of what we got. They put out, I think, the first five pages and there was this sudden and very unexpected avalanche of press interest that nobody had planned for because there was a big movie announcement coming later that week. So it was like, okay, it was going to be, we were going to do like maybe two or three little interviews and then we had to kind of shut up (laughs) and they were going to move on to this other thing. And you know, like this is, this is normal. This is not anybody picking on anybody. This is just how it is in comics. Like there's big announcements all the time. There are movies that are coming out. There's actors that are getting involved in things. So you have a really brief press window, super brief. 
what happened instead, and this might be useful to people, because the expectations were so low, the fact that that first issue was as good as it was shocked people. Oh my gosh. Yeah. It was, we benefited from low expectations because I love people, it. Yes. Everybody remembered that yeah. just low expectations, low expectations. No, it was so hilarious. People were expecting it to be terrible. There was a portion of people who thought it's going to be this completely anodyne, just sort of like Muslim Barbie. Nothing is ever mm. wrong. Nothing ever happens. Mm-hmm, Everything is mm-hmm. perfect. Nobody is flawed. Nobody has a personality. They don't resonate with it's anyone because they're just, yeah. Yeah. It's just your little, you know, like you get to take off a box. Okay. We've done this book and everybody can forget about it now. And we'll be able to say that we put out a book about this kind of person. And then we never have to deal with it ever again. So there was those expectations. And then on the other side, there was, is this going to be like, she's a terrorist or like her, you know, she's going to get honor killed or she's going to be forced to wear a burqa or like, you know, so those are the two kinds of expectations. And then it comes out and it's just this funny book about this quirky 15 year old, you know, hanging out at the corner store with her friends, you know, drinking Slurpees and sort of like talking about life and, and dealing with bullies at school. And people were just stunned. I think they were stunned. They were they, expecting the leader of ISIS. They were expecting the leader of ISIS. <laughs> Even yeah. if it was a 15 year old, they'd be like, when's ISIS coming? I'm, I'm very happy that you had <laughs> that's, a that's right. Exactly. Exactly. I love that. There was such a shock that it was not, that it went so against expectations that all of a sudden we had all of this press interest and we had to turn people away because at that point, Marvel was not prepared to dedicate that much press to it because they had a big movement. Wow. So we, we actually had to, to turn away like people from NPR and like these other even people. Even in comics, publishing wow. will take a good opportunity and try to screw you over. <laughs> yeah. Even in comics. <laughs> to be fair, it was like nobody expected it, including me. Like I had other deadlines. I was on other stuff. I didn't know at that point that I was going to rearrange my entire life around this character, that it was literally going to be before this and after this. Like I had no conception that that was going to happen. Speaking of press, though, What was that process like of Disney kind of coming on and turning it into a show? When did you hear about it? What was that timeline like? So, yeah, I don't own Ms. Marvel at all in any capacity. She is, you know, it was work for hire. She is 100% owned by Marvel, which is owned by Disney. There's plenty of stuff, even now, you know, like that comes out about her or involving her that I hear about when you guys hear about on Twitter. (laughs) Wow. So that again, that's normal. That's normal. Mm -hmm. What is, what is not usual is a new character to become this much of a cultural touchstone this quickly. Yeah. So there is no real roadmap. And I, I have to say like the folks at Marvel have never been anything but wonderful to me and, you know, have made efforts to include me along the way that they were not legally obligated to make. Yeah. I love all my people at Marvel. This is how the mill goes. <laughs> you know, this is, this is how yeah. the flower gets ground. Yeah. Um, but you know, like I've had an unusual amount of not input, but participation in her life outside of comics for somebody who's created an unexpectedly big character. Um, I love that by a big factor, but it's still nothing like what it would be if this was my own of course. character who I owned. So yeah. it's, you know, I think people coming from the other side of publishing like novels are, are shocked, like, oh, my God. I mean, it, it, it would be stunning. It would be like un- unthinkable for, you know, you to write this huge, long thing and then not be involved in its sort of afterlife. 
but um, in comics, that's quite usual. <laughs> I've actually had, uh, yeah, I've done a lot more than a lot of people in terms of, you know, her life outside of comics than, than is usual. So yeah, like I, I didn't want to loom from the very beginning. Once she became this unexpectedly big thing, I was like, okay, this is not just storytelling now. Now this is succession planning because I'm not going to be on this book forever. And in fact, I should have a horizon for myself because this book, if it's successful, will make careers for other people. I think when you're a member of a community and you know you do something that is sort of for and about that community, you have to put the ladder back down. <laughs> you know, and bring other people up. I love that analogy. Yeah. Not just for that thing. And in comics, it's, I think, an especially good opportunity because it's not something you own. <laughs> like it's, it's something that becomes part of this bigger media stratosphere. It's going to go be in uh, movies and video games and cartoons and all this other stuff. So it generates opportunities. And I think a way that the average book does not and so in the latter couple of years of my tenure on the book, I was thinking about how do we expand this character? How do we create maximum avenues mm -hmm. of exploration that other writers and artists can use to take her story in different directions? So, you know, you'll see that in the beginning, the, the, the book is very closely focused on Jersey City, on her family, on her yeah. friends. And then it widens out and widens out and widens out. And that was me on purpose <laughs> over the period of about two years thinking, okay, so when I leave this book, you could take it and you could chase it into outer space. You know, you could, you could follow this strand over here. You could take it back to Pakistan and, and do stories over there because now we've got characters in that part of the world. You know, you could stay here in Jersey City and we've got this roster of villains that you could use. So I wanted it to be as seamless for the next people who are coming on to take this character and continue to tell stories. Yes, take it to Pakistan. Take it yes. to Lahore. Yeah. Oh my gosh, the hunkiest secondary character is there. <laughs> I would love to see all the ancient cities in like a Marvel yes, comic book. So cool. You've touched on so many different mediums, your novels, your comics. How do you have longevity in your career and how do you create that brand for yourself so you're not just marketed as the Muslim author? Yeah you're kind of branching out and you're doing all these other exciting things, but you're, you're making it. So it's your brand is not just one book. It's not just one identity. Maybe you could provide insights as to how you did it or as to how you positioned yourself in terms of longevity. Oh man. Yeah. When I figure it out, I will let you know. <laughs> the thing that I've actually struggled with over the years is that I don't really have a brand. Uh, because I've done so many different things and in many different genres, not just medium, but like now I'm doing Poison Ivy, which is like kind of body horror. <laughs> like, yes. Yeah. Um, you know, very, very different. And in fact, you know, it's the kind of book that I would not have taken when I was writing Ms. Marvel because, you know, Ms. Marvel is a calling. <laughs> and I tell people this, you know, when they come on, I'm like, Miss Marvel is an F up free zone. Like when you're on that book, you have to be... <laughs> You know, I, I just, you know, I wasn't cursing on social media. I was like, it's, it's, you, you really are an ambassador for something really special. So I would never have taken a book like that when I was, when I was on Ms. Marvel, but you know, like I've had to jump around so much between mediums, uh, yes. between genres. 
I do a certain amount of like how to be a writer type speaking events. You know, I just do so many different things to sort of cobble together money enough to feed my children and keep a roof over our heads (laughs) that I've never really developed a strong brand. There will be periods of time where I'm like, that's good. That allows me to be flexible and, and do different stuff. And sometimes where I get really frustrated and I'm like, I wish I was like some of my friends who are like the horror guy or, you know, like the the rom-com girl or like the history person or what have you. Because of that strong branding, they're able to sort of go deep instead of broad. They're sort of the first call if you want something from that, whatever. I feel like your brand is being good at all these different things. <laughs> like, I think your versatility is what's kept Tinker you Taylor soldiers by in the industry. That's for what so I long. mean. Yeah, with longevity, it's like you're yeah. you're doing these different. Well, we diversifying your income streams, and you're you're kind of doing all these things that it's like it is your brand. Yeah, I would never just want to write fantasy. Mm. Like, yeah. I would never just want to write contemporary. And I think Emily is the same way, which is mm-hmm, why mm-hmm. I think it's worked out for you. Yeah. Well, it makes it so you're not boxed in, right? Like you're not just the Muslim fantasy gal. Like, you know what I mean? Yeah, right. You know, exactly. I think there's an upside and a downside, right? Like I do a lot of different stuff. Very rarely does any of that stuff hit the lists. The lists are curated. Yeah. Yeah. The lists are lies. (laughs) I do a lot of stuff, but most of it is very low key in terms of, you know, like how it sells, how it turns out, like what kind of audience it builds. It's a weird beast. And I feel like I haven't fully grappled with it. And also now, you know, like at the very beginning of my career, like being a Muslim writer was a huge, like if I had a brand, that was a huge part of it. But now I have been sort of like consciously shifting the way that I present that part of my writing, because it's really easy, especially in this atmosphere to be like blocking the door in a sense. I was very wary because my experience is so unique, especially to my generation. Like I sort of, you know, like I converted at 20 during sort of the height of the Dao effort when it was not unusual. There were converts all over the place. Like big Dao was a huge thing. Now there are fewer and fewer. We're kind of not, we're in a very different era. And I think I am not a useful symbol or representative of like the American Muslim community. And I've sort of consciously tried to redirect some of those things that are sort of like, we, you know, like we need a Muslim voice about this. And I'll be like, actually, maybe you want to talk to this person or this person in recent years, because yeah, I'm, I'm just not a good, I'm not a good representative. If there is an average Muslim American experience, mine is not it. I will tell you as a Pakistani who also grew up in America, there is no average experience. Like <laughs> I will say, I think what I love about the Ummah and for listeners who don't know, Ummah is what we call like uh, the Muslim community around the yeah. world. We're so diverse. And I think what you're saying kind of reaffirms that, that there's so many people from different backgrounds, different careers, different interests. And I think that's the beauty of it. So, yeah. you know, what? I, I think the more that you are contributing to the Muslim space is, you know, inadvertently adding to the Muslim experience. I hope exactly. so. I hope so. It's, I've, I've sort of shifted a little bit. The thing that I love the most is getting to what we got to with that slogan in Ms. Marvel is, is finding stuff in the Islamic ethos that anybody can use, putting that out there and being like, oh, you know, like you may have thought that this is not your thing or that, that like a book about Muslim characters or that is influenced by, by Islamic theology or mythology, 
has nothing to offer you, but oh, look, maybe it does. And maybe there's overlap with your own experience or your own belief system that you didn't expect. I've, I've become more specific, I guess, and intentional about what I do. You know, because Islam is, and people say this all the time, the world's most diverse religion. Like, I think there's an assumption that it's synonymous with other things. And like after Ms. Marvel got big, I would get calls about like, oh, you know, we've got this Palestinian character in this, you know, universe that we're building. Would you come write that? And I'd be like, actually, Palestinian and Muslim are not the same thing. And Mm -hmm. there's plenty of Christian Palestinians because it's the birthplace of Jesus. (laughs) But I do know some Palestinian writers that you could talk to. So like things like that, I will sort of like gently redirect to writers that I think have more to contribute in that particular you know story or whatever it is in in sort of a more general sense because i find it so frustrating the way that certain books are presented as like aren't we good you know here's this diverse book you don't have to read it just know that we're publishing it mm-hmm, mm-hmm. i have changed radically the way that i will like promote my friends books i'll be like you know it's an extraordinary story about family resilience it's got elements of fantasy and i'll bring it at the end if it's specifically muslim or specifically you know whatever it is do you think that your audience broadened because you're talking about all these different yeah. things that people are maybe asking you to write and like because they think of you when especially with miss marvel getting so big did your audience for your books broaden the sad answer to that is not really really i'm so shocked by that you know if you can crack this code I will love you forever, but (laughs) I am constantly begging people who read my comics to read my books without pictures. Begging. They need to, I'm a, I'll scream about it. I have to go cap in hand and be like, please, please read my books without pictures. You know, that's another thing that I kind of struggle with because there certainly are comic book writers who've really kind of made it big in prose as well. I mean, Neil Gaiman is a perfect example of that, but I think in most of those cases, their novels resemble their comics in a huge way. Whereas my novels do not resemble my comics really at all. I like to think that there's a through line of, oh gosh, the universal principles that are at work in all of the books are the same kind of throughout. And one of the most helpful and and sort of comforting pieces of feedback I got from a friend who also does marketing. When I was complaining about this, I was like, I don't have a brand. My books are all different. The genres are different. The tone is different. Everything is different. I can't get people who read one to go and read the other. I've never been able to consolidate it into sort of a brand identity. He said, you're very good at communicating your values. And I was like, ooh, that's interesting. (laughs) I like that. So I don't think that my audience is broad. I think it's eclectic. I almost think that's a better word. Because I think the books, you know, some people come in who are big sci-fi fans, sci-fi fantasy fans. Some people come in who are looking for books from sort of a Muslim ethos, even if it's not necessarily about Muslim characters. Some people are coming in because maybe they heard about Ms. Marvel and they want to read something else. And they're all so different. They're all very, very different. But it's not a general audience, you know, like that elusive general audience where it's like, you know, book club moms and people who read all the Oprah's book club suggestions and airport bookstore books. There's only 10 novels, you know, on the shelf, but it's one of those 10. My audience is not a general audience. It's an eclectic audience. I feel like I know them pretty well now, even though in some cases there's not a ton of overlap. And it's because it's a community of shared, shared vibes. I wouldn't even call it shared values, (laughs) shared vibes. 
shared vibes. I love it. I feel like you have quiet community, like a whole mm. section of quiet readers who aren't That's loud. That's a really good way of putting it. I know a lot of friends who have read your book, but they are not online, like Muslim yeah. people and even like writer friends. And they're just not posting about it online. Yeah, I think you're right. I think that is that is a part of it, because when I do events in, in person, you know, now when they happen in person anymore, there are people who show up who, you know, sometimes it's people I've met before. And then sometimes it's people who will come up and be like, oh, you know, like my daughter was taking this class and read this book and said I would really like it. And so I read it and I really wanted to meet you. You know, it's stuff like that where it's sort of a, almost a game of telephone as to how they got there. And that's always very interesting to me. And I love hearing from people about that. Like, how, how, how did you end up reading this book? <laughs> I will also say, and this has been interesting, and I've been thinking about this a lot recently. There are, I think, a lot of people, not just Muslims, but from across the board religiously who are interested in religious writers who are not theocratic fascists or <laughs> on the other end of the spectrum, yeah. sort of uh, like, you know, very, uh, I don't even know how to put it. I'm like trying to say this in a way that makes sense. It, it, it's, it feels like there's less and less room left for sort of religious fiction in the vein of J.R.R. Tolkien or mm. C.S. Lewis or I know I'm naming, you know, dead white Christian guys, but, you know, of that ilk. Yeah. Fl and flawed characters, I think maybe. Is, right. Where it's yeah. not like nobody's trying to convert you. Yeah, exactly. That is my struggle. I write a whole range of genres, but like my fantasy is very religious inspired, very like biblical, mm -hmm. but also very like inspired by the Quran, but also like very morally gray people. And I'm like, mm -hmm. I don't know, you know, if there's room for these types of books in the market. Yeah. Well, you know, what's interesting that you say that because I've been thinking about the same thing because it feels like it's pulling to the two extremes. On the one hand, like you've got the rise across the world of these far right religious movements that I think are very scary and turn people who are just sort of living their lives against religion in general mm -hmm. for good reason. And then on the other hand, you've got the reaction to that. There is a critical mass of people who would love something that is fun to read that has well-developed characters, that explores religious themes, but is mm. not trying to convert you yeah. or trying to say that religion is terrible. Like that, you, yes. you know, yeah. Or trying to say that this is the pristine person who's embodying right. that religion. Exactly. Right? Yeah. They, like, they, they want real books. They want real mm -hmm. books that have mm -hmm. religion in them. And I think, I think the opposite is like that postmodern secular you know, why secularism and modernity is like the way to go. That's kind of what I see as the opposite as like the far right religious fanatic. Yeah, those are your two choices. It's like you're a far right yeah. religious theocratic fanatic or you're like all religion is bad. Yeah, secularism is, is the terrible. way to go. Western secularism. Yeah, I have yeah. a big issue with both. I think that religion fundamentally is about how to be a good person. And so I I hope we get more books that explore fun interactive ways through fiction, fantasy, sci-fi. I wanted to ask you now about your books before we get into our wrap-up questions. Are you working on any current novels? You kind of said you put out yeah. novels like every five <laughs> years. And when you do write, do you write to trend, especially in this era of pandemic? How do you decide what to write? Yeah. What's your process like? I am unfortunately not fast enough to write to trend. You know, by the time I'm done with a novel, that trend is gone. <laughs> Because, you know, because of this, this tension between the short term deadlines and sort of the long term aspirations. So yeah, I'm just I'm just not fast enough on the turnaround with novels to, to write to trend. So 
novels are really where I get to do what I want. Usually in comics, it's if you're writing a shared universe, there's a big event coming up that you have to contend with. Uh, you know, there's overlap with other characters. So you have to be conscious of all of those things. So my novels are sort of like, I, I write them for me. They're my babies. They're not in a shared universe. I pick things that I feel like I can live with for a couple of years at a time. Usually I'll, I'll start out and be like, oh, this is a great idea. You know, like it's going to be set in the 15th century or like I'm finishing a novel now that's about watchmaking and, and you know, like there's a, there's a time travel element. And I'm like, oh, this will be great. And, you know, I get 150 pages in and I'm like, why have I done this to myself? This is why it takes me forever to write novels <laughs> because like the subjects are all so complicated and like specific and all of this stuff that I have to spend half of my time Googling like in, in the late 1400s, did they have fireplaces yet? Or are they still using like, you know, <laughs> braziers with, with, you know, openings at the top and all this stuff. So they tend to be big, rambling, <laughs> complex beasts and very much labors of love, but no, I don't write to trend. I have to say, I envy the people who can, like there are people who do that really well and, but they can turn out books fast, which I can't mm. do. When you said like that, usually the trend is dead or whatever. It's like, by the time I get there, yeah. the trend is dead. Yeah, but like sometimes it, it like comes back around or like it, it was never really there to begin with, you know, like it's like almost impossible to write to a, a trend because yeah. like you never know when it's going to catch fire and when it's not. Yeah. It's true. It's true. Yeah. I, I think there are some people who just have a really good sense of the zeitgeist and they can yeah. be, they're like right on time like yes vampires are back and i just happen to have a vampire book or you know like now it's all about you know regency fiction and i've written a regency book so mm -hmm. like there are people who, who can definitely do that i'm just not one of them so i just i, I have to hope i have to hope that watchmaking will be hip uh yeah, yeah. i think some people <laughs> i feel like trends are very cyclical like also tiktok TikTok has like brought everything Old trends back. back. Yeah, thank God for TikTok. Oh God, the pivot <laughs> to video. I, you know, like I just, I'm not a camera person, and everybody now is like pivot to video, and I'm like, how? I how no do skills. I do this? Yeah. Well, this has been awesome. We usually tend to wrap up our interviews with a couple of questions, but the first being, have you learned any hard truths from being in the publishing industry, both in comic books and in in novel writing? The, the thing that I have learned the hard way is that nobody knows anything <laughs> when it has to comes to trends, like all mm -hmm. of this stuff. There have been so many stories about books that people think are going to be the next big thing. And like, mm -hmm. you know, the, the person gets a huge six figure, or even seven figure advance mm -hmm. and it just tanks. It tanks, yeah. you know, and then on the other hand, occasionally you get these, you know, lightning in a bottle books where nobody saw them coming and everybody's like, oh my God, this is the best thing I've ever read. But 99% of the time, it's going to be in between those two things. And it's so difficult to predict that you might as well just write the book that you desperately need to write, unless you're one of those people. And I don't know how they identify themselves, but like, you know, unless you're <laughs> one of those people who is just so plugged into the zeitgeist that you can, you know, have your Regency book ready to go when Regency fiction is in and you're vampire book ready to go when vampire fiction is in if you're not one of those people which i am not you might as well just write what you want to write and some mm. of it's gonna you know be unexpectedly big like ms marvel and you know some of the things that you really really hope are going to be giant enormous successes are not going to be giant enormous successes and they can follow each other you know i was hoping bird king would get a huge ms marvel boost and it didn't you know, again, you have a long tail where I've had some great conversations with it and it always shows up, you know, in, in some quantity or other when I'm doing signings. But 
you cannot assume mm-hmm. that success in one department is going to translate to another department, whether that's the next book, another genre, you know, whatever it is, you know, like that can feel very frustrating and limiting, but to maintain your sanity, you should think of it as freeing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you should think of it as freeing. Because, you know, the publicists, the publishers don't know either. You can sort of hope that, okay, if they read this, they'll love this and it doesn't happen. And sometimes the opposite occurs. Poison Ivy, which I'm doing right now, I thought was going to be like, it started out as an eight pager. I was a little eight page short story for an anthology. And the editor and I were like, wow, we were really into this. Let's, you know, let's do a mini series. And then the miniseries came out and sold like hotcakes. And now we've got six more books. So, you know, like originally this was going to be one day of work for me and it's turned into a year of work. And then you can have the opposite happen. Early in the pandemic, got the opportunity to write in the Sandman universe, which I'd wanted to do since I was about 14. Yeah. And I was like, oh gosh, I hope this really, you know, becomes a big thing and I can write more Sandman. And, you know, it came out in the worst part of the pandemic and tanked. You never know. You never know. Make the Bird King a comic. Oh, gosh. Wouldn't that be fun? Do it. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) Maybe that's what I should do. You heard it here. That's right. (laughs) So our last question, if you could give one piece of advice for someone who writes, what would it be? For comic book writers, you live and die by your outlines. I am a person who hates outlines. I'm a person who resists outlines. But when you only have a set number of pages to work with and a set number of issues to tell a story, you need to know to within a page how your story is going to play out. So outline, outline, outline. I I learned that later than I should have, where I thought I could get away with sort of general summaries. No, you need to do detailed outlines. This sounds like my nightmare. I'm glad I'm not a comic book writer right now. Yes, I know. It sucks. It sucks. I'm not going to sit here and pretend that it's fun. but it does make your life easier. That's my piece of comic book writing advice. You know, for writers in general, here, I will say this because we talk a lot about marketing, especially in this highly competitive atmosphere. No one is a better ambassador for you than you are. People will try to put you into boxes. People will try to, you know, distill what you're trying to do into summaries that drive you crazy. The more that you can be an ambassador for your book. You know, it's not necessarily having to build up a social media following or any of those, you know, soul crushing things. Those things come with time <laughs> yeah. and persistence. You know, if it's even like setting up at your local coffee shop and, you know, telling your Facebook friends like, hey, tell people I'm going to be here from five to six. You know, does anybody want to do a free write? Or like, if you've got, if you've got a book, I'll, I'll sign it now. Mm. Uh, you know, like it, whatever you can do, especially these days when people are so burned out on advertising, they're so used to being sold things. Yes. Half of our feeds are trying to get us to buy stuff. A human connection and word of mouth is worth its weight in gold. Wow. You will always be the best ambassador for your work. And I'm not, you shouldn't spread yourself so thin that your job has become advertising yourself. But anything that you can do to decrease that space between you and the reader is valuable. You know, that includes word of mouth stuff because, you know, in a world saturated with marketing, we more and more rely on our communities to find out real information. Yes, that's true. That was amazing advice. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I learned a lot. So thank you. Thank you so much, Willow. Thank you so much for having me on. This is really delightful. Thank you for listening to On The Right Track Podcast. Visit us online on Instagram at On The Right Track Podcast 
subscribe, leave a review, rate, and share with a friend wherever you listen. This show is hosted by Emily Varga and Sarah Mughal Rana. Our editor is Abby Cirquitella. If you'd like to support us, please visit the links in our show notes to find more about how.